Hey everyone, welcome back to the Gospel Clarity Podcast. We are so glad that you're joining us. My name is Mark. And my name is Andrew. We are back here in the studio recording again, picking back up on episode five, where we're going to continue on in encountering Christ in the scriptures. Looking forward to it, Mark. It's been, a, it's been too long, man. That's right. It has been. So let's get started. So, Andrew, it's good to have you back here. Yeah, yeah, it's good to see you, Mark. We have had, I mean, quite a wild couple of months. Yeah, we've kind of, our schedule got all kind of out of order and out of whack, a lot of traveling, yeah. um, a lot of shifting responsibilities in the life of the church, for example. Yep. You are now serving as the pastor of our West Seattle Expression. That's right. Everyone is really excited about that and just being able to celebrate uh, God's uh, growth in your life, or the growth of grace in your life, and how God has been shaping you for this role and seeing the church rally behind you in that has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. been pretty awesome. Great to see uh, Lord's grace there. And we've also been traveling all over the States. Yeah. Like Tour de Arthur's, Tour de Smith's is what it was. Yeah, yeah. Not together, unfortunately. Some of it was. Well, one. We went to Atlanta. We went to, we went through, we were there for an hour, but it still counts. We uh, went to yes. Kentucky. Yes. We went to Chicago. Oh yes. For an hour, but uh, it still counts. Connecting flights. <laughs> That's you're not supposed to say that, but <laughs> it doesn't sound as exotic when you are just connecting flights. And actually, we should tell them the. I think actually the worst landing of my life was that landing from Seattle to uh, Chicago. Do you remember that? That was rough, yeah. We were on the plane. The whole staff team was there, and we almost didn't make it. <laughs> it felt like we were going. Yes. yes, because we were going. We should tell them the story real quick. This We're, we're about to land. Everyone's having a, a good time. It's been, it was pretty rough, though. It was kind of like a bumpy ride. And then as we're uh, descending, mm-hmm. we all notice that the, the plane is rocking back and forth as we're about to hit the the hit the ground Mm -hmm. and as soon as we hit the ground one wheel it hits one wheel like to our right and then it moves hits the wheel to the left and then the remember the plane just stopped and everyone flew forward because it almost ran out of room is that what happened it was a 90 degree turn so as soon as he stopped he then the only move he could make was to turn to continue on concrete yeah (laughs) and so it was just yeah it was it was crazy why didn't he land earlier there's no real i don't know there's no real explanation yeah. given. Although people did clap and that bothered me. It bothered me too. Yeah. I don't think you should clap or applaud a terrible landing. Yeah, you should applaud a smooth, smooth a la- landing. A landing that I don't feel. Yeah. Gets we my we applause. could start that, you know, trend. Yeah. Next time we fly, we'll just clap when it's a good landing. And and if it's bad, we'll say don't applaud. That's right. No. We'll shut no, people no. down. He needs to do better next we'll time. We'll stand up and yes, we'll say there's a higher standard <laughs> than what you guys are applauding right now. <laughs> And he's missed that standard. <laughs> yep. Yep. Or she. Whoever the or she. Is. Whoever the pilot is. I don't want to presume. Yep. And actually, both of them. 
both, both the pilot and the co-pilot are responsible. Therefore, we definitely should not apply. I mean, two people got it wrong. That'd be like you and I really messing up this podcast. <laughs> we're trying together, yeah. so we're both in trouble, right? Yeah. Most of the time, they just hold you responsible, but you know, I don't know. They yeah. can re- they can hold me responsible too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Andrew, it's good to be back, and um, it has been awesome seeing and kind of walking through encountering Christ in the scriptures and looking at this theme of gazing and going, and we're still kind of hanging in, resting in that theme of gazing Mm -hmm. right now and asking the question, why do we do what we do as a church together? Yeah, so we gather to gaze, like gathering to gaze the beauty of Jesus to to fix the eyes of our faith upon Christ. And everything that we do when we gather uh, should serve that move. It should help us gaze. Right, yep. And so uh, we've been talking a lot about um, gazing Christ by seeing Christ in the scriptures by reading the Bible and preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible in such a way that would disclose the beauty of Christ so that we might gaze upon him in faith. Mm-hmm. Good. And so today we're going to continue on that theme of and kind of that topic of encountering Christ in the scriptures. And so tell us what we're going to be doing today mm-hmm. in terms of that. that well, so last episode we focused kind of on big picture, uh, kind of the airplane view i don't know how, how many bird's feet? eye view yeah bird's eye view how many feet airplane oh air i like that reference airplane? from her what uh, I'm, I'm, see how 50, i'm tying it in no Thirty thousand feet 20, i'm gonna say i don't know because uh, how, how many people feet do know do and i fly? don't <laughs> yes uh well you like how i tied it in though <laughs> yeah i do back in. <laughs> yep i do but, yeah i'm impressed by that Sometimes you can just be proud of yourself. Uh, so <laughs> last time we looked at this topic from the seat of an airplane, however high it is in the air, yeah. and getting the big panoramic picture. Today we thought it would be helpful to look at a passage of Scripture and just read it together and reflect upon it and try to um, apply a certain approach to reading and interpreting the Bible that would uh, serve our gazing as followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we are going to be diving into Psalm 23, a, uh, a psalm that many of us are familiar with, many of us have read before, and has some really clear New Testament references that we can kind of just discover together, but it kind of gives us a good ground, a good example of um, how we're going to do this. Yeah, it'll provide a good case study, case study of us just reading a, a passage that's succinct, uh, that's packed with a lot of uh, beautiful content, and it's certainly a, a passage of the Old Testament that can uh, draw our gaze towards Jesus. Mm-hmm. And a quick side note, too. Um, we have really enjoyed some of your emails that we've been getting from uh, the Gospel Clarity email. Um, if you have a passage that you want us to kind of look at, or there's one that you've been thinking about in terms of maybe it's a little abstract and you have some questions on feel free to email us that text, that passage, and maybe some of your questions, and we'd love to try to help out. And if it's, if it's a really good question, then we'll, uh, we'll put it on the podcast and we'll dive into that text maybe. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Yep. So, yeah. Challenge. Challenge to you. To who? To we. Actually, this, to... Uh, we're co-pilots. We're, we're I just, flying uh, an airplane together. I, we, true. We're not uh, solo pilots. Right. Right? Okay. I just tried to put that responsibility off of me onto you, and that didn't happen. So anyway, Psalm 23, we're going to look at two phases. Yeah, why don't you read the passage for us, and then we'll uh, identify the 
approach. Sounds good. This is from the CSB translation, by the way. Um, some some words are a little bit different if you're reading the ESV, but today, since Andrew and I both have the CSB in front of us, and that's what we use in our church, that's what we're going to be going off of. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I have no fear, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Right. And so when it comes to gazing upon Christ in the scriptures, uh, encountering Christ in the scriptures, seeing Christ in the scriptures, when we approach a passage, whether it's in our devotional time or whether it's us rallying around a passage as a church or in your churches when you're gathering to study the scriptures and to preach the scriptures and all those dynamics, there's, there's a lot of different approaches that people take to reading and interpreting a select passage of scripture. We're going to try to give you a, a, a rather simple, uh, but yet... Um, uh, a simple approach that could serve, I believe, you well in being faithful to what you're reading and um, being able to find Christ in the pages and passages of the Bible. So uh, basically two phases or two moves anytime you read a passage. Uh, Phase one uh, is where you want to take a passage, you want to read it and examine it in its what's called its immediate context. That is the immediate context in which that passage finds itself and where it is positioned in a book in the Bible, as well as where that passage is positioned in the Bible as a whole. And so you would just want to make some very simple and quick kind of uh, observations about the immediate context of a passage like this. And so when it comes to examining the text's immediate context, you you want to basically... recognize that every passage has three dimensions to it. Mm. There is a literary dimension, there is a historical dimension, and then there is a theological dimension. And so let's start first with the literary dimension because that should be most kind of apparent to us when we're reading a passage of scripture. And so Mark, what is meant by literary dimension? Yeah, so the literary dimension is looking at the Bible as a whole, as a whole book. It is filled with 66 books of different genres. That's the first part, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at this is not written all the same way. Right. And the, the book of Psalms would be different then, from, say, the book of Isaiah. Right, right, yeah. And then within that, I'm going to look at the, um, I'm going to go in, I'm going to say, is this in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Because that's going to give us a lot of signs as well, right? And a lot of indicators of how I'm going to approach this text. Mm-hmm. So this is in the Old Testament, and now this is the book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. So the Psalms is a collected works of poetry and songs that that Israel used to worship God. And then within that, you have, of the book of Psalms, you actually have five books in the book of Psalms. Five books. 
it's kind of confusing. And a lot of, sometimes people don't recognize that. And each book within the Psalms, they all kind of have a different reflection or a different season and time that David or one of the songwriters was writing to speak to a historical context of, uh, of Israel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so for example, some psalms would be <clears throat> written as uh, kind of, uh, as basically kind of like uh, incredible calls to worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're referred to as psalms of ascent. And these, the people of Israel would sing together as they were ascending the hill that the temple or the tabernacle rested upon in any given moment. Well, right. in David's case, it would, well, yeah, it'd be the tabernacle as the temple's being constructed and be finished by his son Solomon. And so they would sing these psalms of ascent as they are moving towards the Lord in worship together. Right, yep. And then you also have songs that are um, focused particularly on repentance or something that is, that's one more of a corporate kind of a, a something collected that Israel wants to sing or say together. Mm-hmm. But then you also have Psalms that are incredibly personal, like Psalm 51. Mm-hmm. David is repenting to God over a particular sin that he alone caused. Mm-hmm. Um, though we can all identify in some degree or matter with sin, that is a deeply personal Psalm that gets recorded because that's a, a song and a prayer that he is bringing to God through repentance. And that's his way of expressing it. Yeah, so you want to pay attention to that type of thing because some of the psalms, as you read them, they may use a lot of uh, first-person plural language, mm-hmm. and it's Israel speaking together to the Lord or singing together, we, our, then they're owning kind of their relationship with God as, as a corporate people. But then some psalms would use first-person singular pronouns, mm-hmm. and they kind of have a, a they tend to be a little bit more emotional, a little, a little bit more... Um, intimate and uh, a lot of self-disclosure, a lot of self-struggle, uh, um, yeah. whether they're, whether the psalmist, I'm thinking of Psalm 73 where Asaph, not David, but Asaph is talking about his doubt in the goodness of God and he's working through that in a very raw way in mm-hmm. that psalm. And so th- there's something in here for every person <laughs> in every stage, every season, every setting of life. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things I think that's so beautiful about the Psalms is because they are so identifiable in the, in the, in the faith, in the Christian faith for the believer, because anyone has identified in some way or another with the different emotions that are being stirred within the Psalms, but then they're also deeply personal from the author's perspective mm-hmm. in that they are you're you're witnessing someone pour out their heart to God um, in a in a way that is just incredible and very raw, very real, um, very deep. And so today we're looking Psalm 23. So if we're gonna are we gonna move into looking at that that historical side now? Yeah. So uh, so one note uh, again on the literary dimension of the text, recognizing that this is song, uh, poetry, that it is a song, as you stated requires us to interpret it differently than, say, if we're reading an epistle by Paul. Um, Because poetry and psalms, a lot of the language that are found there are uh, metaphorical, figurative, uh, things of that nature. And so... So we shouldn't um, interpret 
there's a difference. This the same as we would with Romans. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not, these aren't just stated propositions. These are poetic declarations, and that makes a difference in how we are um, kind of interacting with them. And it also means that the Psalms can speak on a on numerous levels. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, where a psalm may kind of look like a multifaceted diamond and you can turn it and you can look at it from different angles and different perspectives as you as you think deeply and meditate upon the metaphors that are present in it. Cool. Just like song, music and art does. I mean, music and art speaks to us in, in the deep places. Mm-hmm. And the psalms do that very well. Yep. Cool. Okay, so now we want to go to historical. So you... you you become acquainted with the literary dimension of the text. We're here, yeah. And then you want to become acquainted with the historical dimension of the text, which for the Psalms, that could be challenging. Yeah. I mean, all of Psalms have, all of the Psalms have different contexts, different historical contexts. Some of them are clearer than others, mm-hmm. right? There's different footnotes that we have. There's different historical data. There's other books of the Bible that give us a real clear context to when this psalm was written, which really makes, I think, the scriptures come alive. You know, when you read a narrative story and then you read the psalm that goes along with that story. I'm particularly thinking about um, Psalm 51 with David's sin. I think that's a really cool, clear um, comparison there. But right now, if we're looking at Psalm 23, we don't have an exact historical moment that we can point to of it was this year this time of David's life that we were writing to but we can narrow it down a bit more we know it's written from David right Mm -hmm. yeah it's a psalm of David Mm -hmm. as noted at the top of the psalm we know that David lived he reigned during Israel's golden era he was considered Israel's greatest king and but we know that life for him wasn't always golden, especially after he was anointed to become king and then his actually um, inauguration of, of being the king because there was a guy named Saul who didn't like David very much. And so a lot of the... the you, you referred to First and Second Samuel and some of the historical stories and narratives that happened then, and a lot of those concern a conflict between Saul and David. Yeah. And David is spends a lot of his life in his early years running from Saul and trying to uh, respect Saul as king, but also recognizing that Saul was envious of him and wanted to kill him because Saul viewed him as a threat and he was his replacement, mm-hmm. <laughs> according to the prophet Samuel and others. And um, that didn't make Saul happy. And so a lot of Psalms, particularly these these the ones that are very deeply personal where a lot of I and me and my language is used when it's a psalm of David, a lot of them fall somewhere in that stretch of life when David is being chased and pursued by Saul. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of emphasis here on you know it's not they're not all tied to that moment, but a lot of them are. Others are tied to the Phil you know, the Philistine Israel conflict yeah. and opposition and and things like that. And so being aware of of those historical occurrences and possibilities can help kind of bring some of the language in the psalm to life. Yeah, and I also even think it just as simply as this is a this is a person who has a complex past. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at someone with a simple kind of straight timeline. We have someone who's a shepherd boy who gets anointed surprisingly, mm-hmm. 
um, who God picks and then gets run out from uh, from the king who he once trusted. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many complexities to David's life that when we look at this, we want to keep all of that in mind. Yeah, right. And so then that would move, move us towards, uh, think for a moment about the third dimension, the theological dimension. Theological dimension, yes. And at this point, you're really just feasting on the language of the text. Mm. You're listening, you're, you're reading the whole passage, making sure you're, you're paying attention to a unit of thought or a, a unit. Like Psalms are easy because they are clearly, there's a start and there's an end to yeah. the Psalms. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we just drop in the middle of a story and we may be unfamiliar with the literary historical context because we're not taking a, a broad enough stretch of scripture to really give us that, the context that we need. Yeah. Hey, um, could, could I ask you a quick question? Yep. So when I was, um, when I was in Bible college, mm-hmm. when I was reading a lot of like, sur- I was taking a lot of survey classes and reading a lot of the books in the Bible really fast. And I found that I started um, creating a bit of a bad habit of immediately trying to find the theological mm-hmm. message. Just like, what is the theological point of this passage that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. What's the danger of doing that too quickly? Well, you tell me. You said it was something you fell into. I'm, I want well, to ask you. Why a I know it's a problem, but <laughs> I want you to tell me why it's a problem. <laughs> I think it's a problem. Well, I'll say it was a problem because I didn't, um, when I was thinking only, when I was thinking only theologically, genres went away. Mm. And I was easier it was easier for me to misinterpret yeah. a theological meaning yeah the literary historical context anchors your theological conclusions right and then or, i don't know anch- yeah anchors it they and mean. yeah and then the 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 historical context reading something just looking for a theological context without knowing the history behind it blurs everything together to where you don't know the significance bef- behind who wrote it and why and so for me, that took out the personality, and it took out the emotion and um, the 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 characters and the realness of the text. Yeah. Those are two reasons why I think it's kind of dangerous to do that. Yeah, these are certainly interdependent dimensions. Yes, uh, you, you don't. That's want what I was getting the at. Other. You you don't want to reduce everything. You don't want to read the Bible just as literature, uh, because then you're you're missing. Like the Bible's not like Shakespeare. Right. Um, there are, there is literature in it that how we read Shakespeare could possibly inform how we read the Bible in terms of how we read poetry, interpret poetry, that type of thing. But we go a lot further in the scriptures <laughs> than we do with Shakespeare because we're uh, recognizing that these dimensions, literary, historical, and theological, are inc- are interdependent and they are needed to. Yeah inform each other. Okay, so let's go back to theological mm-hmm. context now. Looking at Psalm 23, what are some the- so you would look now, you would just kind of feast on the words of the text, you would get into the flow of thought, you would read, read, read and then see what theological themes surface and then you just start identifying those. And so right off the bat we're told the Lord is my shepherd. Um, one thing that I notice when I read this psalm is the number of times David refers to my or me. Uh, verse 1, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Verse 2, he says, he lets me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. 
He leads me along the right paths. Verse 4, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 5, table before me. You anoint my head with oil. Verse 6, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. I mean, this is a deeply personal psalm. Yep. And so what does that tell us about our theological view and approach to God? First, that this is a this is deeply personal. This is uh, a relationship. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, that David has a an intimate relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So much so that he can like take ownership of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. That's possessive. <laughs> He's saying true. That true. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, a deeply personal and intimate identification with with the Lord, with Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And not only that, there's a there's a um, there's multiple dimensions to that relationship. So, in addition to these, this this personal, intimate, um, the the theological theme of having an intimate relationship with the Lord, there's you're all we're also reminded in verse three. There's an important note, and this is a note, or this is a chord that is struck a lot in the Psalms, and it is a chord that is struck a lot all throughout the Bible. And it's a chord that we need to pay attention to when we read it or see it or we hear it struck, no matter what passage of the Bible we're reading. And that's in verse 3, where David says, He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths. And then he explains why. Mm. Why does the Lord relate to David in this way? We're told in verse at the end of verse 3 that he does all of this for his name's sake. And so that's a deep theological chord referring to the glory of God or how God does everything for his glory, for his name's sake. And that includes, as we'll see later when we cross-examine the passage, most likely in the next episode, Mm -hmm. uh, that includes how God keeps his promises. Like, Why does God keep his promises to his people? Well, he does it for his name's sake because he basically puts his reputation on the line when it comes to caring for his people, no matter where or when they are in this world. And so David here in the first three verses is in a really good stretch of life. I mean, it's beautifully described of green pastures, quiet waters, renewed life, the right paths, all this good stuff is happening for the, and the Lord is leading him through these moments for his namesake or for the glory of God. Yeah. So could we ask, so if we wanted to look at this text and ask theological questions, would a theological question be, why does God lead David for his namesake? Is that a good theological question to ask? Mm-hmm. Would another question to be, why is God, God, the shepherd, leading him through both good times and bad times, through quiet, still waters and through dark, deep valleys. Is that a theological question? Yeah, it's definitely a theological question. Um, the, so one thing about the Psalms is that when you, when you read a psalm like this is how deeply real and raw they are, that they deal with life in the real world. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible in general, that the Bible addresses us in the state of the world that we are in now. Mm-hmm. And that means brokenness, fallenness. That means complexity, not simplicity. And that means um, nuance and not just a uh, monotonous uh, kind of 
a fairy tale kind of movement. This is a real world with lots of complexities, lots of difficulties, lots of things that we don't know. And so there are questions, theological questions, that we will ask as we journey with the Lord through this world that we may not always get the answers to. So, for example, when a Christian finds his or herself suffering, and they may ask, why is this happening to me? That question, at least the precise reason or the precise answer to that question, may never be discovered in this life or in this world. There are biblical, theological um, perspectives that we need to have when we suffer that the, that the scriptures give us as far as like how the Lord can use suffering to make us more like Jesus. Um, there, there's lots of um, counsel in that direction from the scriptures, but that doesn't necessarily say a precise, you know, tit-for-tat reason why a person may be going through what they're going through. And um, so the theological question of, of why is important, but what we would want to do is to dive into a text to figure out, okay, well, if I can't know exactly why, what can I know about what I'm going through? Mm. Uh, what can I think through? What, what can I bank on in the midst of this difficult stretch of life that I'm going through? And in, in, in David's case, there is a shift from verse 3 to verse 4 where he's, verses 1 through 3, he's in the good stuff, he's in the good places. Verse 4, it turns a corner, and now he's walking through the darkest valley. And some translations uh, refer to that as uh, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So it's yeah. not a place you want to be. But David finds himself there. But he doesn't find himself abandoned. Right. He doesn't. He's not alone. Right. And this is where you really want to pay attention to the details of a passage. Mm -hmm. So in verses 1 through 3, David is talking about the Lord. It's as though he's standing there pointing at the Lord, saying, yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. He lets me lie down in green pastures. And he's basically just boasting about the Lord. But when he shifts into verse 4, he's no longer talking about God. He's now talking directly to the Lord. So you see it when he goes, even when I go through the valley of the shadow of, of the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you or with me. Mm -hmm. It's the first time he addresses God directly in this text. And so we don't know why exactly David is walking through this valley. But one of the things that we can bank on is that when you're in the valley, it's more important for you to talk to the Lord than it is for you to talk about the Lord. And so a lot of suffering that would compel us to want to complain and grumble and, and argue and um, you know grow bitter and really start bad-mouthing the Lord to other people or whatever the case may be if we're really upset or hurting or whatever... David gives us a model here where he says, look, when you're in the valley, it's not sufficient for you just to talk about the Lord theologically. You want to talk to the Lord personally. Mm. And so in verses 4 that's and really 5, good. that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's, he's talking directly to his shepherd. That's great. So let's talk about the connection between verse 4 and verse 5 here. We, have, we, are, we want to talk directly to God in the midst of dark moments in the midst of suffering. Yeah, it's better to talk to him than about him. Than about him, right. But now let's use that and help us answer this language in verse 5. 
Mm-hmm. The language of verse 5, if we're talking to God about our suffering, not about him and our suffering, what does then, what's the theological significance behind verse 5? Uh, well, verse 5, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. One of the things about being in relationship with God and being a person of faith in a faithless world is that one of the reasons there is so much faithlessness in our world is because suffering happens, because there are valleys of the shadow of death that people must walk through. And when that happens, a lot of faithlessness expresses itself in antagonism and animosity towards those who who are clinging to faith in the midst of those. And so uh, a lot of times um, our enemies or those who would oppose having you know the fact that we may have faith in the Lord and we're trying to trust him in, in the midst, midst of difficulty and hardship and they may uh, start mocking and they may try to antagonize our faith saying you're trusting in the Lord who would let you go through what you're going through right now he doesn't seem to be very good he doesn't seem to be very kind he doesn't seem to care about you very much otherwise shouldn't he protect you from the suffering that you are walking through? Shouldn't he keep you from ever walking through the valley of the shadow of death and and pressing in that direction? And what's beautiful about this psalm is that David is affirming that the Lord actually prepares a table before him in the presence of his enemies. And then he uses this language of his head being anointed with oil and his cup being overflow, uh, his cup overflowing, which is a, a picture of abundance and blessing. And then he gets into verse six, and he talks about the goodness and faith, how goodness and faithful love pursue him and follow his, follows him all the days of his life. And so there's a shift, I think, in David's mentality, and I think it it plays out in our experiences as well. That there comes a point in time when the Lord is going to turn our enemies into our witnesses. That people are eventually going to see the goodness of God in our life. Um, that the goodness and the faithful love of God is going to be vindicated uh, when all is said and done. Sometimes there are glimpses of that vindication in this life when people see uh, the Lord staying faithful to us even when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when they are dumbfounded by a resilient faith uh, in the midst of suffering. And this beautiful work of God that that serves to turn our enemies into our witnesses and and sometimes he gives our witnesses a front row seat in seeing his goodness and his faithfulness despite all the evidence to the contrary that they had just mocked in a person's suffering or story. And I also think, too, just a side note, that verse 5 is a really good example of the interdependency of the literary, historical, and theological context coming all at play. Mm-hmm. Because without understanding what anointing your your head with oil, like is, is that good or is that bad? And what, what does that even mean? And when was that done? Only then can you really understand its theological implications. Right. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. good. Well, cool. Mark, um, so we've introduced a little bit of the kind of just the immediate examining of a text in its con- in its immediate context, looking at the literary dimension, historical dimension, theological dimension. Now, phase two is where we begin to cross-examine a passage, and that's when we do the things that we just did, particularly with the theological themes that we've identified, and 
cross-examining those in light of the person, work, and or teaching of Jesus. And this is where we begin to read a passage in a way that draws our gaze towards Christ. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to do that in this episode as we had, I think, initially set out to do. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to pause it here. We're going to wind this down and then pick up in our next episode with phase two, that is cross-examining a passage. Mm-hmm.